Eaton this morning by reminding ourselves where we are in the book of Acts by looking at a map um, of Paul's third missionary journey. I don't know how well uh, you can see it, but there are two lines here. There's a solid line kind of at the top. That's his starting out journey. And that uh, it's, he starts out in Antioch of Syria over there on the right side. And he goes up into Cilicia and Galatia and now into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And then two weeks ago, we saw a riot there in Ephesus with Paul. And in Acts 20, then, he goes from Ephesus and he takes that route up through into Macedonia uh, and then down into Greece, which is called Achaia on this map. And he ends up at Corinth. And he's there in Corinth for three months with them. And then he begins his return uh, journey, his journey back to Jerusalem. That's the dashed line. And it basically follows the same path until you get down here into the Mediterranean Sea. And then he takes ships back down to Palestine. And so you can see from Paul's journey that he sets out toward Jerusalem uh, for the Feast of Pentecost. That's his goal, is to get back to Jerusalem by the Feast of Pentecost. And so on his return journey... He's going to stop at all the churches that he hit on the way out. And you can see him in Macedonia and Asia Minor again. And we'll see that as he's making those visits on his return journey, he hears this constant refrain from his friends in these churches. They say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. The religious leaders are going to arrest you. They're going to beat you and imprison you. They're probably going to kill you. Please don't go to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but if a bunch of people I trusted told me not to go somewhere, told me that I would get beat up or even die, if I did go to that place, I would not go to that place. I would stay as far away from that place as I could. So why does Paul remain steadfast in this journey? Why does he continue to press on even when he knows the suffering and imprisonment that await him? If we can learn from him, perhaps we can face our own trials with the same kind of resolve. So as we come to this passage, let us ask God to speak to us through his word. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand, and understanding that we may believe, and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 20 at verse 17. And Paul's already started this return journey now. He's come back through Macedonia. He's sailed over to Troas in Asia. And from there he sails to Miletus, just south of Ephesus, down there in the lower south center of Asia. So Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city 
that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So we hear there of this resolve that Paul has to go to Jerusalem. It's not his own resolve. He says he's constrained by the Spirit. God is calling him to Jerusalem through the Holy Spirit. And yet, he says it's that same Holy Spirit that is also testifying to Paul in every city that prison and affliction awaits in Jerusalem. How does the Spirit testify to Paul in every city? What does that look like? Well, apparently, he's talking about the prophetic words of the Christians in those cities, because that's what we're about to see. But note that even before we see those prophecies uh, accounted for in our narrative, Paul tells us this has been happening on this whole journey. But Paul also gives a reason for his persistence in this journey. He indicates what drives him forward despite these threats to his personal safety. Verse 24 I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, we do value our lives. We do count them precious. That's why we generally try to protect and preserve them as best we can. And our lives are precious. They are precious to God. But Paul indicates that there is something even more valuable. The gospel of the grace of God. What does he mean by that? It's the good news that Jesus is Lord and King. And that through Jesus, God bestows grace, undeserved favor on all who call on his name. And Paul says he's been put into a situation where he must choose between protecting his own life and proclaiming that gospel of grace. And that's the vocation that Jesus himself gave to him. And so in that dilemma, Paul says he's constrained to choose the gospel, even over his own life. But it's certainly not an easy choice. Paul knows it will mean painful separation from those he loves. And so he continues in verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. His Ephesian friends feel the weight of Paul's burden. And we see the deep love between the shepherd and his flock. Look at verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, I imagine everyone in here knows the pain of knowing you will never see a loved one's face again in this life. Paul and his brothers and sisters are feeling that pain in this moment. It's like a death. This is not an easy thing for Paul. And yet the gospel compels him to continue on. And that brings us to chapter 21. And we're going to follow the map a little bit more here. When we had parted from them and set sail, we came came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, that's that island in the middle there, 
Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So you see them making those stops and that long journey over to Phoenicia and to Tyre. So we're in Tyre now, down here at the bottom right. And in a moment, we're going to see this journey from Tyre to Ptolemais to Caesarea, and then finally to Jerusalem. And so we're done with the map now. Uh, thanks, brothers. Verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there entire for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So there you go. We see what it means when Paul says, The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that in prison and afflictions await me. For Paul, the Holy Spirit speaks through people, through the church. When faithful Christians speak to Paul, he hears that as the voice of the Spirit. And that makes sense. The breath of the body of Christ is the Spirit of Christ. And we can think that especially in these times before there was a New Testament, before Paul had finished writing it, the church relied heavily upon the Spirit speaking wisdom through faithful believers. But this kind of raises a question for us, doesn't it? If the Spirit, through the church, is telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, why doesn't he obey? Why does he go against the Spirit's counsel, if that is the Spirit's counsel? Well, let's see if that question uh, is answered here as we go on. Verse 5, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Again, Paul's friends believe this will be the last time they will see him, the one who has so faithfully taught them the word of God. So it's another painful parting for the shepherd and his flock. But still, the gospel compels Paul to press on. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. So now we're in Palestine, and we're about 50 miles north of Jerusalem. We came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Do you remember Philip? From way back in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 8, Philip was one of the seven men that the apostles appointed to help them serve the church while they focused on the ministry of the word. Philip is one of those. And then we see persecutions come. Another of the seven, Stephen, was martyred by the Jews. And so at that time, Philip left and took the gospel to nearby Samaria. Then we saw Philip share that gospel with a eunuch from Ethiopia, and he baptizes him on the side of the road. And then Luke tells us that the Spirit carried Philip off, and eventually he settled in Caesarea. So that's where we meet up with Philip here in Acts 22. But this is almost 30 years later. Uh, so Philip dropped out of the story for a while, but he was simply continuing to be faithful in the place where God planted him. And apparently the Lord has blessed him with a family there. Philip has raised them to proclaim the same gospel that he has. And that's what we find in verse 9. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now this is an interesting detail that Luke includes here. He doesn't tell us what they prophesied. He doesn't tell us the content of their prophecy. 
Probably it had to do with what awaited Paul in Jerusalem. That seems to be the theme of all these prophecies. But Luke doesn't elaborate. So why does he even bring it up? Why does he include this reference to Philip's daughters prophesying without explanation or elaboration? I think Luke's main concern is to show us that scripture is being fulfilled. Our Old Testament reading for this morning was from the prophecy of Joel, who is known for his description of the day of the Lord, a term designating any time when God comes to both judge the wicked and deliver the righteous. And there in Joel, as was read for us, in connection with that day of the Lord, God made this promise, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. You might remember that the Apostle Peter quoted this same passage at the day of Pentecost when he and the other apostles were prophesying. And here Luke is alluding to it once again. You see, Philip's prophetess daughters were another sign to the first Christians that God was at work among them. A sign that the Old Testament scriptures were being fulfilled in their day. The day of the Lord had come. God had come in Jesus, his Messiah, to set things right to deliver his people from sin and death. And in accord with those prophecies, he poured out his spirit upon the church in new and more powerful ways. And thus, their daughters prophesied, just as Joel foretold. We see that Philip's daughters aren't the only ones who prophesy. Verse 10, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, Agabus has already appeared in Acts as well, way back in chapter 11. Agabus prophesied that there was going to be a great famine. And indeed, Judea did suffer a famine in the mid-40s A.D. So Agabus was considered a reputable prophet in the early church, and he makes this journey from Judea to Caesarea to deliver a message to Paul. Verse 11, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, Bible scholars call this sort of thing symbolic action as prophecy, right? It's something that God often told the great prophets of the Old Testament to do. It's kind of a dramatic way of conveying what God intends to do in history. Paul will be bound hand and foot in Jerusalem. Something else worth noting in this prophecy is this transfer of Paul from the Jewish to the Gentile authorities. Agabus says the Jews will bind Paul and then deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. We heard almost identical language in our gospel reading this morning. Jesus prophesied of himself, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. So it's not just a prophecy of the things that are going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. It's a prophecy about how Paul will be treated the same way Jesus was by the same people in the same city. What's the consistent theme of the book of Acts? Jesus is reliving his life in the life of his church. Isn't that what's going on here with Paul? 
After three years of ministry, Jesus is taken by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. After his third missionary journey, Paul will be taken by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. As it was for the master, so will it be for the servant. Jesus relives his life in the life of his church. He does this to teach us what the Christian life is, what our calling is. It is a cross-shaped life. Christians will suffer as Christ suffered. But Luke also shows us this so that we will trust that not only will we suffer as Christ suffered, but we will also be resurrected and glorified as Christ was resurrected and glorified. This theme, Jesus relives his life and the life of his church, is a call to trust what Paul himself will later write in the book of Romans. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, Jesus Christ relives his whole life in the life of his church, death and resurrection. This is our hope. It's what drives Paul forward to Jerusalem. Most of the time, following in the footsteps of Christ doesn't look very appealing. Paul's friends certainly aren't excited for him to be put in chains and arrested by the same people they know killed Jesus, the same people who killed James, the same people who killed Stephen. So they hear the Spirit's prophecy of imprisonment and afflictions, and they think, ah, that's a warning to avoid Jerusalem. That makes sense, right? And this is an important distinction to make. Right? The Spirit is speaking through these believers, telling them what's going to happen. Their prophecies are true. These things will happen to Paul. The problem comes with their application of these prophecies. What do we do with this news? And naturally, these believers think the proper response is to prevent Paul from going to Jerusalem. Surely that's why the Spirit told them these things. So Acts 21.12, When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And notice that Luke includes himself. He was one of the people urging Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's only natural, right? If you knew your friend was walking into almost certain death, wouldn't you counsel him not to go that way? But even this counsel, well-intentioned as it is, it, re it shows us that Jesus is reliving his life in the life of Paul. See, in our gospel reading, right, we saw almost the exact same situation as what we have here. Jesus told his disciples he was going to Jerusalem. He told them he would suffer and die there. And Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And you know the response. Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter doesn't understand that Jesus must go to Jerusalem. He must die in order to fulfill God's plan for salvation. In our passage, Paul is not that harsh. He doesn't call anybody Satan. 
But he does chide his friends a bit. Look at verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am, I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He shows incredible resolve. More than just the imprisonment that has been prophesied, Paul says he's ready even to die in Jerusalem. Because that's what his Lord did. If he's willing to accept that outcome, the worst possible outcome, then what is there that can hinder him? He goes forth without hindrance. Verse 14, And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Now normally it would be very good to be concerned for the well-being of a friend. Normally it would be very godly to protect someone from danger. And in most cases, Peter would be right to try to preserve Jesus' life. Paul's friends would be absolutely right to protect him from arrest. But in both these cases, Jesus and Paul, there is a higher concern at work, isn't there? There is something more at stake that is even more important than the preservation of one's own life. What is it? It's the mission of God. It's the purpose for which God sent his son. And the purpose for which he called the Apostle Paul. And the purpose for which he redeemed his church. It is nothing less than the salvation of the world. That the gospel would be proclaimed to the world. And if that is the case, then anyone who would keep Jesus from Jerusalem is a type of Satan, a hindrance to the mission of the Messiah. Any friend who would have Paul disobey God's call is attacking Christ's bride. Think about it. What would happen if these two men chose to protect their own lives and not go to Jerusalem? If Paul listened to his friends, he might have avoided being arrested. But then none of the events that we have in the rest of the book of Acts would have happened. He would not have preached the gospel to the Jews. He would not have preached the gospel to the high priests in the council, as we will see next week. He would not have preached the gospel to the Roman governor, Felix. He would not have preached the gospel to King Agrippa. And he would never have made it to Rome to preach to the highest authorities in the empire. All the events that we will study next Eastertide, it all happens because Paul goes to Jerusalem. None of that happens if Paul doesn't submit to God's word and make this journey. None of it happens if he's not willing to be arrested and harassed and threatened and passed from prison to prison and ruler to ruler. But that is Paul's mission. And it always has been. Recall the words God spoke to the prophet Ananias, whom he sent to Paul right after his conversion. Ananias said, I'm sorry, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is Paul's calling. He can't run from it. He has to suffer for the name of the Lord he once reviled. He has to go before Jews and Gentiles and kings, and none of it happens if he doesn't go to Jerusalem. 
We can draw the comparison with Christ once again. What if Christ hadn't gone to Jerusalem when Peter tried to stop him? Then there would be no crucifixion, which means there would be no resurrection. And as Paul himself puts it, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. If Jesus doesn't set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem and endure the depth of God's wrath on the cross, all hope is lost. For you, for me, for Paul, everyone. And so, Christ says to his Father, Not my will, but yours be done. And so, Paul's friends come to the same conclusion here, not our will. Let the will of the Lord be done. And so, verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to see what happens to Paul in Jerusalem next week. The point for today is that he's going. Despite all the prophecies of the suffering that await, Paul stays the course. And I have to think that of all Paul's journeys, this last leg must have felt like the longest. Think about what he said back in chapter 20. Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Can you imagine that? Right? Every city he visits, every stop on this journey... He's got people that love him, spirit-led people telling him all the bad stuff that's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. From town to town, he's reminded daily he's going to suffer and probably die. And yet every morning, he gets up, he straps on his sandals, he turns to the southeast, he sets his face toward Jerusalem, and he keeps moving. I'm not sure how he does it. I don't know that I could. But we know why Paul does it, because he tells us. Paul journeys to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He is eventually in prison, just as Agabus prophesied. And from prison, he writes letters to all these churches that he's had to leave behind. And it's helpful to read those letters in light of this journey that he had to make and all the people warning him. And as we do, we learn where Paul's resolve comes from. We learn what it is that drives him to keep going where the Lord has called him, no matter the cost. His resolve stems from his belief that those who suffer with Christ will one day be restored with Christ. That those who are falsely accused with Christ will one day be vindicated with Christ. That those who are united with Christ in a death like his will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul believes that in Christ, these momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In short, Paul is willing to give his life for the name of the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus has already given his life for Paul. Let me say that again. Paul is willing to give his life for the name of the Lord Jesus because he knows that the Lord Jesus has already given his life for him. 
And that's why Paul has hope. It's why he's willing to go to Jerusalem even though it may mean his death. To use his own words, Paul knows that in truth his life is hidden with Christ in God. This is the gospel. And that gospel gave Paul the resolve to set his face toward Jerusalem and not look back. It is to give us the hope we need on our own journeys. To face the unavoidable suffering and affliction that come with life in a fallen world. I have no prophecies for you today. I can't tell you what kind of suffering lies ahead, only that it does. I cannot tell you when your resolve will be tested, only that it will. As far as I know, no one here is getting ready to travel to Jerusalem where they will be arrested. And yet, every day, we have the opportunity to give our lives for the name of the Lord Jesus, as Paul gave his. Someone wise once told me, whatever you're living for, that's what you're dying for. Every day at our jobs, at our schools, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in everything we do, we can be giving our life away for the good of others, or we can be serving ourselves. We can use our speech and actions to honor the name of Christ or to tarnish it. Either path is open to us. What will we choose? I think we Christians often wonder what we would do if we were put in a situation where we had to choose to either save our own life or die as a martyr for Christ. But maybe every day presents us that choice. Every day we decide if we are willing to suffer and die for the name of the Lord because every day we make a thousand choices about what we are living for, about what we give ourselves to, about what we hold most dear. I pray we can find confidence and resolve where Paul found it, in Christ himself, in Jesus who daily relives his life in the life of his church, in your life. In Jesus, who has already lived and died and now lives eternally for us, so that we may live and die and then live eternally with him. Let us pray. Christ, our King, you set your face toward Jerusalem, toward Calvary, toward the cross. You did it for us. You did not live to save yourself. You died that we might live. For this, we give you thanks and praise. And knowing that you have overcome the world, knowing that you have defeated death, grant us the resolve, grant us the faith to follow you, as Paul did, even into the face of suffering and death, that your name might be glorified in all the earth. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen.